In fact, my son turned out to be quite contrary to most of my expectations. Are you kidding me? I was 16 years old. I wanted the Barbie doll looks. Little people who have this wonderful disregard for the impossible. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. Since 2013, we've been bringing you tall tales and personal tales and fairy tales and folk tales and historical tales and more. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today. A pleasure every time that you tune in and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. And it's going to be a great hour today. We're going to hear a story from Martha Reed Johnson called Blonde, Beautiful, and Bubbly, a story about growing up with a practically perfect younger sister. And we're going to hear John McCutcheon tell the tale of John Henry, the American folk hero who went up against a modern steam drill with nothing but his own brawn and his mighty hammer. And of course, we'll hear about how that story impacted John McCutcheon, the wonderful storyteller and songwriter at a young age. And we're going to hear the wonderful mime and storyteller Motoko tell the story of her son's first experience with being bullied and left out of the circle. All kinds of stories about family, about growing up about learning about ourselves. You won't want to miss a word. And to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Samantha Danes, one of our assistant producers. Samantha, listen, I got to tell you, the first of all, it's great to have you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Second of all, tell us what we can expect from a story with the title of Blonde, Beautiful, and Bubbly. Yes. So this is a story by Martha Reed Johnson, and she tells a lot of family tales. So this is a story about her younger sister, Beth. Um, and it's all about her experiences growing up from when she was a kid to when she was an adult um, with a younger sister who is blonde, beautiful, and bubbly, <laughs> which in some cases is good, but when you're the older sister, it can be very frustrating sometimes. You know, some of the most uh, rewarding experiences we have and some of the greatest frustrations that we experience are due to our siblings, right? Oh, I amen to that. I can definitely agree with that statement. <laughs> well, no matter how you look on your nearest sibling, here's Blonde, Beautiful, and Bubbly from Martha Reed Johnson here on The Appleseed. Family matters. It's a lesson I learned growing up. I was one of five children. I have three older brothers and a younger sister, Beth. We were raised by crazy people. In the summer of 1972, my parents decided to put five kids ages 20 to 6 in a station wagon. My sister and I had the way back of the station wagon. You remember the place where there was no seats. My three brothers sat in the back seat, mom and dad in the front. With all our camping gear loaded in a trailer in the back, we headed off cross country. Eight weeks in a station wagon, Massachusetts to California, visiting every state park and national park in between. My sister loved to talk and to sing and to hum. She was always making noise of some kind. And after six weeks in the station wagon, we were all a little bit crazy. And we pulled into a gas station in the middle of Utah, nothing around for miles. We all got out of the car when the serviceman came out to pump the gas and wash the windshield 
you know, they used to do that. We all went into the restroom, and then we loaded back in the car and headed back out on our journey. I realized my sister Beth was not in the station wagon with us, and I leaned forward over my brothers to tell my parents. And my brothers grabbed hold of my arms, and they pinched me and said, Don't you say a word. So I didn't, and we drove down the road about 20 more minutes. And then my father realized that the car was silent. He pulled off to the side of the road. He stopped the engine. He said, everyone, get out and line up. You would have thought we had 40 kids or something. But as we lined up on the side of the road and my father began to count, he looked at us and said, where's your sister? I stepped forward. I said, we left her back there at the gas station. I tried to tell you, but they wouldn't let me. My father just looked at my mother. He said, Faith, get back in the car. He looked at my brothers and I, and he said, you don't leave family behind. And then he got in the car, and he drove off with my mother. And I was left on the side of the road with my brothers thinking, you don't leave family behind. After that, my sister learned not how to just talk, sing, hum, make noise wherever she went, but she learned how to command the attention of a room like no one else. We got to be teenagers. My sister blossomed. I didn't. She was tall and blonde, beautiful and bubbly, and she could draw a crowd in about five seconds. We were on another summer adventure. This time we were heading to Nova Scotia. We were on a ferry boat. We'd only been on the boat maybe 10 minutes. And I was standing at an upper deck watching my sister down below, flicking that beautiful blonde hair. She had a gathering of boys around her. And they were laughing and having a great time. And as I watched from the top deck, I thought, how does she do that? Then my father came over and he stood next to me. And he watched me, watching my sister. And I turned to him and I said, what's up with that? He looked at me. He said, Marty, do you want the Barbie doll looks? Or would you rather be the one that everyone loves to share their stories with? <laughs> Are you kidding me? I was 16 years old. I wanted the Barbie doll looks. My sister and I got older. I was in college. I came home for break. My father said, Marty, can you drive with your sister? She just got her learner's permit. She just needs time behind the wheel. So my sister and I got in the Chevy Chevette four-speed stick shift and headed down the road. As she drove down the road, shifting those gears, the car would lurch forward. I would hold my breath and hit that imaginary brake. My sister was flicking her hair and playing with the radio. And I didn't say a word, but I held on tight and we pulled up to the first intersection. My sister stopped the car. She put it in neutral, pulled up the emergency brake, unbuckled her seatbelt, and stormed out of the car and left me at that intersection, horns honking. And as I watched her walk away, I thought, you don't leave family behind. But I ran around, got into the driver's seat, and drove on. Beth and I got older. I went off to college, graduated from college, then I'd gotten engaged, and my sister had just graduated from college, and my mom and dad decided they wanted one more trip with their two youngest daughters. My parents were studying on sabbatical in Oxford. They decided to fly my sister and I to England, and then we would spend three weeks in Scotland. 
My sister flew from Boston Logan Airport to LaGuardia. I flew from Baltimore International Airport to LaGuardia. We met there. We checked our bags, went through security, and went to the gate to board the plane. We were told the plane would be delayed for two hours for mechanical problems. My sister and I took a seat in the waiting area. The area was full. I sat down with my book. My sister began to talk to everybody there. Where are you going? How long are you staying? And is anyone going to be there with you? We're going to Scotland. She began to tell them our life story. Everybody was engaged with her, watching her. She flicked that beautiful blonde hair. And I thought to myself, how does she do that? And suddenly, in the middle of the conversation, she stood up and said, Martha, I forgot to mail my bills. I'm going to the front. And as she walked away, I watched her blazer flapping open. Her bills were there, and our tickets were also in that pocket. I said, wait, you're going to mail our... She didn't hear me, and she walked off. And I thought, she's going to do it. She's going to mail our tickets. And the gentleman sitting next to me said, well, why don't you stop her? I said, no, you don't tell my sister anything. And I waited, thinking, no, she's older. It'll be okay. In pretty short order, my sister was running back to the gate. Her blazer was flapping open, and there was nothing in that pocket. And I thought, she did it. She mailed our tickets. She came up to me. She said, Martha, I mailed our tickets. They're back there in the blue collection box. What do we do? What do we do? I just quietly got up. I walked over to the clerk at the check-in counter. I said, ma'am, we have our boarding passes to board the plane to Heathrow. My sister has just mailed our return tickets. That won't be a problem, will it? The woman at the counter didn't say anything for a while. Then she said, it won't be a problem. You can board the plane to Heathrow, but I'm afraid you're going to have to repurchase your return tickets. We didn't have money to repurchase tickets. I was newly engaged. I didn't want to go on this trip with my sister. I just wanted to make googly eyes with my fiancé. Then my sister said, I'm just going back out to get them. I'll get them out of the box. I looked at her. I said, Beth, that is a federal postal collection box. You can't get the tickets out of there or they're gone. I'm going to go check. And she stormed off, blonde hair flying out towards the front of the airport. I sat down and began to think. And then it occurred to me that if anybody could really pull this off, it would be my sister. So I got up to follow. The man sitting next to where my sister had been said, where are you going? I said, I think I'm going to go watch my sister. She just might pull this off. And we walked out towards the gate. And then three or four other people said, I'll come. And then there were others waiting and said, we'll come. And suddenly I was walking out towards the gate with an entire entourage of people out to watch my sister. We got out to the front of the airport. My sister was standing by the blue collection box. She was watching the cars and the taxi cabs go by. I stood a little bit distant from her, and I began to watch her watching the traffic. And then I looked over and saw all those people from our plane watching me watch my sister watch the traffic. Until finally, that white postal truck pulled up with that postal logo. The postman driving looked to be about 107 years old. He was tiny and bald with dark, dark, big rim glasses. He stopped the car at the curb. He had barely stepped out when my sister ran over to him, and she picked him up and swung him around and began to kiss his bald head and his cheeks, saying, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. And he just stared at her as she swung him around. 
And finally, she set him down, and he just continued to stare at her as she said, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. I walked over to the postman. I said, sir, my sister mailed our tickets. They're in that box. Could we get them out? He didn't even look at me. He just reached to his belt, and he unclipped his keys, and he handed them to my sister. She grabbed those keys and she went over to that box and opened it up and began to tear through the mail. I pulled the collection crate over and brought it under her hands and she dumped that mail in that crate. And finally, she pulled up those tickets and waved them and said, I've got them! And the postman just stared at her. And the people watching began to clap and to cheer. And I thought, great, I'm going to Scotland with my sister. When really... All I wanted to do was leave her behind. We went to Scotland, enjoyed our three weeks, and when we came home, I married Sam. Sam didn't like Beth. Beth didn't like Sam. Sam and I moved a thousand miles away, and I left my sister behind. Twenty years later, Sam left. I walked into my house sat down by the lights of the Christmas tree. My heart was crushed. I was crying. And my sons came in and sat down next to me. My youngest, Joel, said, Let's go home. They love us there. My older son, Russell, said, I'll drive. So the three of us loaded in the van. My son, Russell, drove us the thousand miles to get home to my parents for Christmas. We arrived in the driveway in the middle of the night. I stepped out of the van, and my sister ran up to me. She picked me up. She kissed my face and said, I'm so glad you're here. I looked at her, blonde, beautiful, bubbly, and thought, I'll never leave you behind again. Blonde, beautiful, and bubbly. A story from Martha Reed Johnson. A sibling story And, you know, when you listen to a story like that, you find yourself thinking about all of those, you know, those similar relationships in your life. It seems like everything that Martha Reed Johnson talks about, even though you may not have had those same experiences, trigger the experiences that you have had. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I I have a a younger sister who's three years younger than me, and she is blonde, beautiful, and bubbly. And I was always jealous of her. I thought she always had all the friends. She was so cute and fun. <laughs> and we we fought a lot growing yeah. up. It was uh, so hearing this story and just hearing how the the tight bond that these sisters yeah. have, even though they they quarrel and they have differences, is just really heartwarming to me to know that. Like, d- despite it all, we're still family, yeah. and we still love each other, and we're still going to support each other. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think about my—I the, the, I have a lot of siblings, but the one that's just younger than I am, I'm the oldest, and my brother Joe and I, 
uh, fought and 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 fought. In fact, I've told some of the stories about my brother Joe and and me on the apple seed. But we are the best of friends, and and I I think we I think we were probably even the best of friends back then. You know, good. That's how you want it to turn out. That's right. Yeah, and a story like this can sometimes be the spark. Uh, for kind of filling your head with memories of the people who are dear to you. And, you know, we always encourage you to open your mouth and share those stories with the people that you love. That kind of storytelling around the kitchen table or the living room can make for memories that last a lifetime. What a pleasure to hear that story from Martha Reed Johnson, to listen to it with Samantha Dane. Samantha, thanks for being with me. Thanks for having me. And there's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Bain. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you with us here on The Appleseed. It's my pleasure to be with you. And if you're just joining us, before the break, you heard the storyteller Martha Reed Johnson with a story called Blonde, Beautiful, and Bubbly about growing up with a practically perfect younger sister. Maybe there was something in that story that you can relate to if you are a sibling or had a sibling or are the parents of siblings. Relationships, of course, between brothers and sisters can be some of the most challenging around and some of the most rewarding as we learn to make room for each other in the world. Lots more coming up. We're going to hear the story of John Henry, the American folk hero who beat the modern steam drill with nothing but his own brawn and the might of his hammer. We're going to hear it from the great storyteller and songwriter John McCutcheon. But before that, how about a conversation? with a friend. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, from tales passed down, telling to telling, around the fire or around the living room, to great books that we read, terrific stories that we find there, and the things we see on screen, and the wonderful memories that we associate with great pieces of music, and of course, our interactions with terrific food, are some of the greatest inspirations for some of the most enduring memories and stories in our lives. We love to talk about all of those things. And I'm delighted to have in the studio with me Jenna Parker. Jenna, it's great to have you back on the Appleseed. Thanks so much for having me, Sam. And listen, Jenna Parker is the is the proprietor, uh, this has got to be the best in the world, <laughs> right, of, uh, of an outfit called uh, Max Alamo. Now the Max there is macarons, right? Yes. Yeah, and yes. we're talking about imagine an ice cream sandwich made in a macaron. Yes. Now just let that hang out for a second. <laughs> it's that is all right. That's wonderful, <laughs> wonderful stuff. And we've talked a, we've talked a little bit about. I think I got I think I got most acquainted with macarons. I I'm, I almost hate to say this by uh, not by personal experience, but by watching. The Great British Baking Show. Yes. <laughs> yes, I always have, whenever there's a new season, there's plenty of people, you should go on this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and as we British. watch, right? Yeah, yes. right. As we watch that show, we we often think, oh, well, I mean, sh- sh- absolutely the pressure is on. I mean, that's like white knuckle stuff, right? right? Even though they're only making food for a couple of people. They're only right. making food yes. for Paul Hollywood and whoever else, right? But... um. And sometimes my wife and I look at each other and think, oh, let's see how these guys do 
you know, put in front of a family reunion or a right. church dinner or yes. something like that, right? <laughs> and you've been in that position. Yes. Uh, suddenly you find out you're cooking not for one or two people, but for 40 people. What do you do? Tell us that. We, yes. we were chatting before the mics went hot <laughs> yes. about this experience you had. Tell us a little bit about yeah, it. Yes. So this isn't actually a very uncommon occurrence in my family. I come from a big family. I mean, we're born and raised in <laughs> in Utah. Yeah. And so, of course, there's a lot of us there. So oftentimes we show up for a family dinner and there could be 10 more people than we expected. <laughs> um, once a month, we have a big family dinner with that many people in our family. There's always a birthday each month. Sure. So we yeah. have a big family dinner once a month. And and this this past Sunday, I showed up and there were 40 people. <laughs> so that's always a fun surprise. But I'm, but I'm used to cooking for a lot of people. And you had expected more people than just your Right. immediate family, yes. right? But 40 yes. people but walked through 40 the door. was a bit shocking. There were definitely some times during dinner where not everybody had a seat <laughs> to sit down <laughs> or they pulled up a chair to to the counter in the kitchen. How did how did how did you fare? It was it was good. We definitely cook potatoes by the bag, yeah. <laughs> not not just a couple potatoes. We do we do gravy by the gallon. Oh golly. Wow. <laughs> and that's homemade white gravy and just I've I've spent countless hours sitting in front of the pot stirring the gravy so it didn't burn on the bottom <laughs> and from from a really young age being able to make really good gravy from scratch and mashing the potatoes oh, in a big wow. huge stock pot that hold holds 40 pounds of potatoes <laughs> and certainly you're not the only one making that food no, right I mean, definitely I, I'm thinking about you talking about from a very young age mm -hmm. learning to do some of those things mm -hmm. and now you with a family of your own calling on everybody to so, you know, it's kind of all hands on deck in a situation like that. Definitely. And some people have a lot of skills and some people have a few skills, but everybody gets pressed into service. Yeah? Definitely. Yes. <laughs> what, what are you teaching your kids to do? My kids, my there's a show, a kid show on actually called Butterbeans Cafe, and my son loves it. It's about these cute little fairies, and they run a little bakery, and so they make these things. So he will come into the kitchen and say, Mom, let's put on our aprons and let's play Butterbeans. So he'll uh -huh. say, okay. So he'll help me stir whatever I'm making. So on Sunday, I may, on the birthday Sundays, I make a make a birthday cake every every wow. month. So we got sick of the, the grocery store birthday cakes every month, so about five or so years ago, I started making them every month. Yeah. Um. So he will climb up on a stool. He'll tie on an apron with me, and he's in charge of the whisk. Whatever there is to whisk, he will go to town. Uh, see, that was <laughs> going to be my question. Forty people walk through the door, and you think, I know what I'm going to do. What am I going to ask? What help am I going to ask yes. from the boy, right? Yep. <laughs> and, and you put a whisk in his hand. Yep, we put a whisk do. in his hand, and he's a happy camper. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, I'm uh, So potatoes and yes. homemade gravy. Homemade and gravy. what else went on the table for these 40? These 40, it was it was a big pork roast this week. Oh, um, my word. Well, short ribs, pork short ribs that my dad makes. And they are so good and just delicious. Um, usually it's it can be a three huge pans of meatloaf sometimes. Wow. Um, if we're doing um, barbecue chicken in the summer, we fill up the entire grill with barbecue chicken. <laughs> um, if we're making shish kebabs in the summer as well, it's it's a whole a whole assembly line to make sure we get those done. Well, what a wonderful tradition to bring the whole extended family. I mean, certainly right. those who are who are close by, right? Mm -hmm. But the entire extended family in for a for for a for a dinner a month, right? right? And of course, some of those are birthday celebrations and mm -hmm. things like that. What a great way to keep everybody not only uh 
together, but happily together. Right. right? Great food. That's the key. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, you know, sitting around the the table together. And Mm -hmm. that that in my family, of course, is when when people are drawn together into close quarters like that, that's when the stories start to fly. That's when you start to say, hey, do you remember when I was in? Mom, tell me stories about when I was in elementary school. (laughs) That I hear still from my adult kids, Mm -hmm. right? Isn't that great? Oh, well, what fun to chat a little bit about monthly dinners. And listen, it's always fun to talk about macaron ice cream sandwiches. (laughs) Uh, You can find Max a la mode on Facebook and Instagram. And, of course, it's a pleasure to have the proprietor of that establishment with us, Jenna Parker. Thank you so much for joining us on The Appleseed. Thanks, Sam. Maybe you know a little bit about cooking for a group. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. And of course, great stories get into our lives in all kinds of ways. A pleasure to chat with Jenna Parker. And coming up, we've got a story from John McCutcheon, the story of John Henry. And we'll also bring you a story from the terrific mime and storyteller Motoko, a story called The Cost of Racism, a story about experiences of her son. You won't want to miss a single word. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's so great to have you with us here on The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a conversation with Jenna Parker, who talked about making dinner for a big group of people, 40 people, all coming together to enjoy a meal. Maybe you've had such an experience, and if you have, talk about it. Tell the story with the people that you love. In just a little bit, you're going to hear a story called The Cost of Racism, a story by Motoko, the wonderful mime and storyteller about experiences of her son, experiences with bullying and other things. Motoko's going to lead you through that story with great grace and with great care. But before that, we're going to bring you a story from John McCutcheon, the wonderful songwriter and storyteller. This is the story of the folk hero, John Henry. And if you haven't heard this story, which many believe was based on a real guy, the legend goes that John Henry was a steel-driving man, a man tasked with hammering a steel drill into rock to make holes for a railroad to pass through a tunnel builder. One person would hold the drill while the hammer man struck a powerful blow with a sledgehammer, and John Henry took pride in his work. So when the news came that he and all the other workers were going to be fired in favor of a new mechanical steam drill, well, John Henry proposed a contest, him against the drill, And if he won the contest, he'd save the jobs of everyone on the railroad. The story has passed into folk legend, and John McCutcheon sings the ballad of John Henry and shares a story about what the song meant to him as a little kid, a nine-year-old. Here's John Henry by the great storyteller and songwriter John McCutcheon on The Appleseed. When John Henry was just a little baby boy Sitting on his papa's knee 
He said the big bend tunnel on the sea and no line Gonna be the death of me Gonna be the death of me Well, the captain, he said to John Henry Gonna bring that old steam drill around I'm gonna bring that old steam drill right out on the job Whoop that old steam right on down Whoop that old steam right on down Well, John Henry said to the captain he said, a man ain't nothing but a man. But before I would let that old steed to beat me down, I'd die with this hammer in my hand. I would die with this hammer in my hand. Well, John Henry hammered on the mountain. His hammer was striking fire. Well, he worked so hard that he broke his poor heart. Laid down his hammer and he died. Laid down his hammer and he died. Now the man who invented the steam drill, he thought he was mighty fine. John Henry, he'd driven 15 feet. And the steam drill had only made nine. Steam drill handling made night. Now every Monday morning, when the bluebirds begin to sing, way off yonder by the mine old horn, you hear John Henry's hammer ring. You can hear John Henry's hammer ring. I was nine years old. I was in the fourth grade. Mrs. Wachtel was my teacher. And I, I was Mrs. Wachtel's favorite student. And I knew that because of all the kids in my fourth grade class, I was the only one that she wanted to spend an extra hour with every day after all the other kids had to go home. Now, Mrs. Wachtel, you see, was not stupid. No, she knew soon enough that it was more punishment for her than for me to have to do detention every day with her most difficult charge. Now, she wanted to be off in the teacher's lounge, smoking cigarettes, drinking tab, and talking about me to all the other teachers. So in her infinite wisdom, what she did is she instructed me in the operation of the phonograph in our classroom. Now kids, the phonograph, <laughs> it's something that Peter Cook remembers from his childhood because he is so old. <laughs> I'm older than Peter. I mean, I have a little writing studio in my backyard, and I have a little surrogate grandchild in the neighborhood named Abby. Abby comes over to look at my fish in my pond, and I was writing one day, and she came in, and she pointed to a manual typewriter on the top shelf, a beautiful old antique thing 
that I found at a flea market and had refurbished. It actually worked. She said, John, what is that? And I said, well, Abby, let me show you. And I took it down and I put a piece of paper in. I said, do you know how to write your name? Do you know how to spell your name? She said, well, yes, I do. I'm seven. I said, you can write it out right here. And she said, well, I know what this looks like. And she typed it up. And she said, wow, it's got a built-in printer. <laughs> so the phonograph is how we played MP3s. Back when there were three a few more threes in the equation. But you see, I took this to be a great honor because I was the one kid in the class. You all had one that got to operate the phonograph, right? I mean, I was headed straight for the stage crew in high school. So I took this to be a great honor, but, but what it meant for Mrs. Wachtelsey is she could haul my little nine-year-old butt right down to the library. That's what we used to call media centers, kids. <laughs> And she could say, John, go in there and pick a record off the stacks, take it back to the classroom, write a report on it, leave, it on my, leave that report on my desk, and then you can go home. And then off she would trot to the teacher's lounge, which is where she wanted to be. Now, friends, you have to understand, this is 19. <laughs> when there are hardly any records in school libraries, ours had... Five. All of which, by this particular day, I had already written a half dozen reports on. But there, on the librarian's desk, on this auspicious afternoon, was a brand new LP. Virgin vinyl. The shrink wrap had not yet been violated. American Industrial Ballads. It was the sexiest title of any record in our school library, which tended to have records entitled things like, speak Spanish like a diplomat. Look where that's gotten us. So with trembling hands, I took this new record back to the fourth grade room and I fired up the little Fisher Price and I put the needle down on the very first cut. And for the first time in my young life, I heard the story and the song of John Henry. But man, detention is never going to be the same. There's banjos, there's singing, there's good stories, and there's victory at the end. And I got to the end of the song, and I picked the needle up. And I sat there staring at this record as though it would speak to me and explain my confusion. Put the needle right back down in the first cut again. Every time I got to the end, I went through that same dance. And I listened to that one cut a dozen times, and it never got any better any time. Because this is a true story, you know. I mean, it tells the story of how John Henry challenged the steam drill, beat the steam drill, saved the jobs of everyone in his community. But in doing so, the guy dies. And in my little nine-year-old world, that's not the way victorious stories ended. I had not yet read The Yearling. 
Old Yeller had not shown up at my local movie house. So confused was I that I just took that platter right off the turntable, slipped it back into its sleeve, left it there on Mrs. Wachtel's desk, stuffed that half-finished report in the back pocket of my blue jeans, and I walked home the long way along the railroad tracks, for those of you who can appreciate that kind of irony. <laughs> and I never handed in that report, and Mrs. Wachtel never asked for it, which further convinced me that detention was never going to be the same. I realized she never read these things. I was never gonna have to write another one. And I guess I have spent the last 45 years of my life traveling this tired old globe, trying to work this song out in front of people just like you. Which is not such a bad gig, I might add. I mean, it's, it's better than my father, who spent the last 35 years of his life trying to come to terms with the fact that that I'm never going to be going to medical school. <laughs> and he will still call me late at night. He'll say, John, you know, they are taking people in college later and later. I said, Dad, give it up. And he said, son, I don't understand, though. I mean, he said, he said, you're good. One time he said, you know, you're so good, you could play country. <laughs> But you write all these beautiful songs and you play all these instruments. Why do you waste your time still singing some of these old songs? I don't get it. I'm of the age now that when my father questions me, I don't have to be as defensive as I once was. And so I've been considering it recently. And I've decided that he's right. That he doesn't get it. Because I don't sing these, this song all these years just because it's a good story. I know lots of good stories. And I don't sing it because of what my friends who are folklorists tell me that it's an analogy of the endless struggle of man against machine. It may be that, but that's not why I sing it. I'll tell you why I sing it. To me, it's a story of all those people. You know them. They are sitting around you today, these little people who have this wonderful disregard for the impossible who keep going up against things so much bigger than they are they ought to know better but thank goodness they don't and people like that rarely actually win but people like that are never defeated and they keep reminding me that we are not called upon to do great things, but rather we are called upon to do small things greatly. Now, I don't know if that's a correct interpretation of this song, but works for me. <laughs> but what I do know is true. It was about, oh, 25 years ago now, my folks were moving out of the old home place where we were all raised, and all nine of us went back home for one last Christmas at the old farm. I was the first one up, as I always am, on Christmas morning. And I came downstairs, and there underneath the tree are nine big cardboard boxes. One for each of the kids with our names in big magic marker. No wrapping paper, just swaddled in duct tape. <laughs> and without even opening my box, I knew exactly what was inside. It was all the junk that I'd left at home. <laughs> My parents were moving and they're not taking that crap with them. 
My children were little, little at this time. So unlike my brothers and sisters, I did not open my box, but rather I ferried it back home. And about four or five years later, under our own Christmas tree, my two sons and I sat down and with penknife in hand, rummaged through my past. And there, amidst all the Boy Scout merit badges and summer camp t-shirts and moth-eaten Little League ball caps at the very bottom of the box, I found an envelope with my mother's handwriting on it said, Save for John. And inside, on a piece of crumpled up spiral notebook paper rescued from the Maytag so many years earlier, is this half-written report for Mrs. Walter. Why she kept it, I will never know. But what was really interesting, reading this piece 25 years removed from its earnest composition, was the ending, the abortive ending, which said, and furthermore, <laughs> furthermore, John knows how to use a thesaurus at age nine. Furthermore, if folk songs are supposed to weed out all the unnecessary parts of the story, what the heck is this last verse doing here? It has nothing to do with the story. Despite the fact that the bottom of the page said, I don't get it, which is apparently a cross-generational McCutcheon male trait. <laughs> I now know that the last verse is the most important verse of all. You may recall that it's the one that says, Now every Monday morning, when the bluebirds begin to sing, way up yonder by the mile on the head, John Henry's hammering. Here John Henry's hammering. Here John Henry's hammering. Lord God, now listen to that cold steel. Listen to ring. John McCutcheon with the story of John Henry. Listening to a John McCutcheon performance is always such a rollicking adventure, uh, an experience with Americana that stirs the soul and stiffens the resolve and lifts the spirit. Always a pleasure to hear John McCutcheon. We're going to wrap up with a story from Motoko, the wonderful mime and storyteller raised in Japan, came to the United States when she was in college to study theater and chose to pursue her passions and become a storyteller and a mime. And she now lives in Massachusetts and has gone on to perform across the United States States and Japan. She was even a guest on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Now, her son was born in America, and she soon found out what many immigrants do, that it's a very different experience to raise a child outside of their native country. And in this story, Motoko shares her son's experience and how it affected both of them. Maybe you have friends from outside of America, and this story will help you understand their perspective or prompt you to ask, perhaps, about their experience. Here's Motoko with The Cost of Racism here on The Appleseed. 
Charlie, Gohan desu yo. Dinner's ready. Ever since my son Charlie was a baby, I have only spoken to him in Japanese. It is important to me that he speaks my native language. When my son was a toddler, I remember being amazed by this power granted to me as his mother to shape his world by defining the meaning of words. For example, after going to his friend's birthday party with him, I said, Tanoshikatta ne. That was fun, wasn't it? And my son said, Yeah, that was fun. You see, that way I was teaching him the meaning of the word fun. Or when his best friend at the daycare moved away, I said, Now don't be so sad. We can visit Timothy during the summer. We'll stay in touch. That way I taught him the meaning of the word sad. And I was glad to be there to make him feel better. But as my son grew older, naturally there were fewer and fewer occasions for me to define his feelings and experiences, and that started me worrying. All his life, I have tried hard to teach him Japanese ways by saying things like, Always bow to your grandparents. Because you're Japanese. Or, don't forget to take off your shoes in the house because we are Japanese. Or, you better eat this nasty pickled plum and stop complaining. That's the Japanese way. But whenever I said things like that, my son would giggle and, to my consternation, answer in English No, I'm an American. I was born here. In fact, my son turned out to be quite contrary to most of my expectations. I had always hoped for him to be artistic, like me. When I finished college, I chose theater and mime for my career. And my parents were so mortified, they refused to speak to me for two years. I was not going to be like that. I was prepared to be supportive for my son to become an actor, or a juggler, or even a rapper, but he turned out to be a jock. My son loves soccer. When he was in second grade, he came to me with this revelation Mom, soccer is life, the rest is details. So when he was in fifth grade, He applied and was accepted to participate in a week long advanced boys soccer camp at the University of Massachusetts. Now, he had never been away from home for an entire week before, and all the other boys would be sixth through eighth graders. Never mind that the campus was only two miles away from my house, I was beside myself with worry. So I counted the days slowly going by, and when Charlie finally came home that Saturday afternoon, I was waiting in the doorway, dying to hug him and to ask all the motherly questions. How did it go? Fine. Did you have a good time? Yeah. Did you play well? Sure. 
As I followed him into the dining room, I even marveled at his monosyllabic responses to female questioning, a sign of true Japanese manhood. But wait, maybe something was bothering him. I looked at him, his short cropped black hair and his beautiful face tanned to perfect brown. His dark, usually dreamy eyes were cast down as he sat at the dining room table. Is there something wrong? Reluctantly, my son said. Well, some kids at the camp from South River made weird noises and laughed at me. What weird noises? What does that mean? You know, Mom, they were making fun of me because I'm Japanese. In a flash, my blood boiled up into my face. Words I didn't know I had in my English vocabulary exploded in my head. Then suddenly, I realized that what struck me most was not the fact that those kids made fun of my son, but that it was the first time ever that I heard my son identify himself as Japanese. Then a strange thing happened. My son, the table, and the walls around us disappeared in a blur, and I was engulfed by a memory from my childhood back in Osaka, Japan, in the 70s. In my third grade class, there was a boy named Akira. He was tall and strong and fast, really good at baseball. I had the biggest crush on him. One winter day, Akira missed school. So when the teacher asked for someone to bring him his math homework, I volunteered. I had never been to Akira's house before. So the teacher wrote down his address and drew a little map for me. Akira lived in a section of the city I had never been to. I went home first to drop off my bag, told Grandma where I was going, and I set off. I crossed a big concrete bridge and came to an old residential area. All the homes were made of dark wood, predating World War II. Most of them were built without any space in between, so it was hard for me to tell where one house ended and the next started. I got lost a little, and it took me about an hour to find Akira's home. By then, early dusk was falling. I rang the doorbell, but no one answered. I rang it again. Maybe Akira was sick and his mother took him to the doctor. Maybe I should leave his homework in between the two sliding front doors. Just then, I heard light footsteps behind me and spun around and saw a little boy standing there. This boy was about five years old, maybe in kindergarten. His face looked so much like Akira's that it was obvious he was Akira's brother. Hi, I'm Akira's classmate. I brought him his homework. The little boy looked at me as if he didn't hear me. I looked at him. 
Then I realized that he had been crying. His face was dirty with tears and grime. I saw some dirt on his clothes too. Maybe some kids had been picking on him. Are you all right? Did you have a fight? Where's your mom? I reached over to touch his shoulder. Suddenly, he glared and shoved my hand away and yelled, Go away, you stupid Korean! I actually didn't know exactly what he meant, but it felt as if he had slapped me across the face. I dropped the homework and ran, tears blurring my sight. When I finally reached my home, my grandma shouted, What happened to you? Grandma, this little boy called me a stupid Korean. Why? Am I Korean? Then I told her the whole story between sobs. My grandma listened and looked very thoughtful. Finally, she explained, No, Motoko, you are not Korean. But that little boy is, and his family. But that little boy doesn't know what the word means. People are prejudiced and kids make fun of him, so he thinks Korean is a bad word. He's angry at everyone. He thought he was calling you names. Mom, are you okay? My son was staring at me strangely as I came out of my momentary reverie. And I looked at him and thought about saying something like, You know, in a college town like Amherst, people tend to be more diverse and open-minded. But in small surrounding towns like South River, people can be ignorant and full of prejudice. Or I could have said, just tell me those kids' names. I'll find out where they live and rip them to pieces. But what I really wanted to say was, don't internalize the hurt you feel the way that little boy did. Just know in your heart that you are as good as any and better than many. If I could come with you and protect you every time you leave the house, God knows I would. But I didn't say any of those things. I just said, Do you want me to write a letter of complaint to the coach? Nah, it's okay, my son said. I can handle it. Me and my friends beat those guys at scrimmage anyway. Then he had a big grin on his face and said, You know, Mom, what you could do to make me feel much better, though? What? Oh, I know. Let me give you a hug. He laughed as he ducked out of my embrace and said, No, there are some new Game Boy games that just came out in Japan. No one in the United States has them yet. If you could send some money to Uncle Minoru, that's my brother in Japan, so he'll send them to me, that will make me the coolest kid among my friends. How much are they? I asked. Fifty dollars each, and there are three I want. That's a hundred and fifty dollars! I screamed in my head. 
then I just said, I'll call him right now. It is expensive to fight racism. A story called The Cost of Racism, shared with you by the wonderful storyteller and mime, Motoko. That wraps up a great hour, an hour that has included not only that wonderful story, but the story of John Henry, the American folk hero, told in story and song by John McCutcheon, the wonderful storyteller and songwriter. You heard earlier on a story called Blonde, Beautiful, and Bubbly, a story told for you by Martha Reed Johnson. And of course, we had a conversation about cooking for a big group of people. Maybe you've had that memory as well. We always hope that the stories that we bring you spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. Join us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. Lots of stories and Appleseed episodes for you to discover there. And, of course, this hour was written by Samantha Danes. Our audio engineer is Carly Robison, our producer Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. Join us again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.